Hello and welcome. I'm David Beard, contributing editor for Daily Coast Elections. And I'm David Neer, political director of Daily Coast. For those of you just checking us out, The Down Ballot is a weekly podcast dedicated to the thousands of elections that take place below the presidency, from Senate to City Council. This is our fourth episode, so if you haven't already listened to them, we've already got an interview with Daily Coast founder Marcos Melitzas, a 2022 midterm overview with Daily Coast elections editor Jeff Singer, and a discussion of Democrats' current polling with Civics co-founder Drew Linzer. So you can look back and check those out as well. And while we're still in the early days of this podcast, we'd like you to subscribe to The Down Ballot, to tell your friends who you think might like it, and leave a five-star rating and review. But let's go ahead and dive into today's episode. What are we covering, Nir? Today, we are going to be talking with Daily Coast Elections contributing editor David Jarman, who is going to walk us through district by district of the changes that redistricting has made to the maps in some of the biggest states in in the country, including New York and Texas and several others. But before that, we are going to take a quick look at a few of our weekly hits. We're going to discuss some redistricting rulings and state Supreme Court elections in North Carolina and Ohio. And then we're going to talk about a couple of members of Congress, one current, one former, both of whom have been enmeshed in scandal and are hoping to prolong or revive their political careers. So let's go ahead and dive into this week's weekly hits. Nir, why don't you go ahead and start us off? So last week, I talked about a pretty distressing redistricting ruling. That was the Supreme Court staying a decision in Alabama that said that Black voters were entitled to a second congressional district in the state. This time, I want to talk about a much more positive set of redistricting rulings, and those are in the state of Ohio, which is a state that has not been particularly friendly to Democrats in recent years. And in fact, Republicans have very large majorities in the state legislature. They completely control the government there, and they passed extreme gerrymanders both for the state legislature and for Congress. But they ran into a massive roadblock, and that is the Ohio Supreme Court. The Ohio Supreme Court rejected all three maps, State House, State Senate, and Congress, in different cases, saying that they violated the state constitution as illegal partisan gerrymanders. Right now, we don't know what the replacement maps will look like. It'll probably be a while before we do. But what I wanted to emphasize is not the case itself, but how we got to this point. The reason why is elections for the state Supreme Court. These are races that get far too little attention and that progressives often overlook. I will say that the right does not overlook these. Big industry spends a lot of money to try to win these elections for top courts in states around the nation so that they get friendly justices who will rule in their favor on cases where big money is at stake. However, in Ohio, Democrats actually succeeded in flipping a Republican-held seat on the state Supreme Court in 2020. It was won by Jennifer Brunner. That still was not enough for Democrats to take the majority there. However, one of the judges on the Supreme Court who is a Republican, the Chief Justice Maureen O'Connor, is quite moderate in her views. And she joined with all three Democrats to invalidate these GOP gerrymanders. And she was quite angry about what Republicans were trying to do to her state. 
And this outcome would not have been possible had Brunner not won her race and also had O'Connor not been on the court. A standard Republican would have voted with their party and we would have lost 4-3. There are three seats on the Ohio Supreme Court that are up for election in November, including O'Connor's. So Republicans could wind up arresting control back. Brunner is actually running for O'Connor's seat as chief justice. A couple of other Democrats are challenging the two incumbent Republicans who are also going to be on the ballot. These are hard races to win, but their importance just cannot be overstated. And also, I'll add, no one likes electing judges. It's a terrible system. No other country in the world does it this way. They think we're insane for doing it this way. We are insane for doing it this way. But this is the system we have. And as long as we have this system, then progressives have to focus on winning these races. And not just in Ohio, because there are many other states at stake as well. And one of them, which also in a similar fashion, just gave us a very strong anti-gerrymandering ruling is a state that I know Beard wants to talk about. And that's his home state of North Carolina. Yes. So I'm from North Carolina originally, and the state Supreme Court there is very closely divided as well. It has a 4-3 Democratic majority, so four Democrats and three Republicans. And there's unfortunately no Maureen O'Connor on the North Carolina Supreme Court. So the ruling has been the four Democrats um, ruling against the gerrymandered maps from the North Carolina legislature and the three Republicans all ruling to keep the maps. Unfortunately, the way that the North Carolina system is set up, the governor, Roy Cooper, who is a Democrat, does not have any veto power over the maps. So the state legislature has the ability to pass them with a simple majority vote. So the Supreme Court is the only real check on the legislature's ability to pass whatever maps they want. And so similarly to Ohio, there are North Carolina Supreme Court elections this year. It is two Democratic seats that are both up. And so those will be, you know, very hotly contested. They are seats that Democrats really need to take seriously and do, you know, everything in their power to win. As we've said, and we'll continue to say, it may be a rough year for Democrats. And so it may be an uphill battle to win these seats. But we have to do everything in our power to, to try to do this and try to hold on to the majority in the, in the North Carolina State Supreme Court. In North Carolina, where they also rejected the GOP's congressional maps and the legislative maps, things are a little bit further along. And Republicans have actually now come back with round two on their congressional maps. What are those looking like? Let me preface this by saying this is an extremely fast-moving situation, as, as it is in Ohio. So you may listen to this, and the events on the ground may have changed a bit. But as of you know, when we're recording this, there are two maps that have been proposed, one by the North Carolina Senate, one by the North Carolina House. I believe the Senate has already said they're going to propose a new map on Thursday. So, you know, this is still very fluid, but the similarity in both of these maps, and I think what folks expect to be the sort of map that gets passed, is a what you would call sort of a 7-5-2 map, which is seven strong Republican districts, five Democratic districts, mostly strong. One is, you know, a little more unstable in a more heavily Republican year. And then two districts that you would classify as competitive, but that were won by Trump and that are more than likely Republican-leaning, particularly in 2022. You would really expect Republicans to hold on to them. In a good Democratic year, you could definitely see them being vulnerable, but it's definitely not sort of a non-gerrymandered map. It is a less gerrymandered map than the originals, 
but it is definitely not a, a fair partisan free map. And you can see this if you just like spend a few minutes looking at them. Both of the maps take Orange County, which is where you know Chapel Hill is located. So it has a very liberal population, a lot of students. And instead of you know connecting it with any of the many cities around it, not Greensboro, not Winston-Salem to the west, and not Durham or Raleigh to the east, it instead takes Orange County and one of the maps traverses it all the way through central North Carolina to Union County, which is a suburb of Charlotte on the South Carolina border. And the other map takes it up to the Virginia border and travels you all the way west for reasons sort of beyond understanding all the way to the mountains of North Carolina to um, Watauga County, um, which is another college town. But you know, with enough rural, more Republican-leaning areas in between to keep it a Republican seat. So it seems very strange that they've done this. It's clearly a gerrymander. There's no, like, reasonable reason to do this. And so it's a question to see, you know, obviously what the final maps will look like, A, but then B, you know, will the Supreme Court of North Carolina sort of accept a less gerrymandered map where, you know, there are some improvements. For example, the the Winston-Salem-Greensboro seat that Kathy Manning holds, which was, you know, cracked in the original map, has been recreated and is, again, a safe Democratic seat. Or will they say, you know, this is still a gerrymander. This is not like a nonpartisan map. And so you need to go back and, and try again. So that's something to be determined and something we'll definitely be following in the weeks to come. So we've been talking a lot about Republicans we don't like, particularly in the Ohio and North Carolina legislatures. But let's take a moment to talk about a Democrat who we really, really don't like. So down in South Texas, there's a competitive House race in Texas 28th district. The Democratic primary is coming up in a couple of weeks, and Representative Henry Cuellar is being challenged by Jessica Cisneros. Cisneros is running for the second time. And she's been endorsed by Daily Coast back in 2020 when she lost a very narrow election to Cuellar, 52-48, and is now running again. And some of the myriad reasons that you know Daily Coast and a lot of progressive organizations have endorsed Cisneros is because Cuellar is the last anti-choice Democrat in the House. He's one of the last you know anti-labor Democrats. He voted against the PRO Act, which was a big major pro-labor bill that passed the House last year. And he's generally been a thorn in the side of a lot of Democratic priorities while he's been in Congress. And so it's been a very close race. It's been very heated. It was upended by a federal investigation that has been ongoing and came out a couple of weeks ago when the FBI raided Cuellar's house and his campaign headquarters. We don't really know much about the investigation. There have been reports that it's associated with the oil-rich former Soviet Republic Azerbaijan. But it's very much just sort of out there in the ether and something that's very concerning. And so it was particularly strange for Aquare to come out with an ad calling Jessica Cisneros a risk and associating her with a lot of left wing ideas and left wing groups, because I think it's a lot more of a risk for a candidate to be under federal investigation than for you know somebody to have like somebody who said something be associated with them. And so this is, you know, somewhat of a competitive seat. It was a, a seat that Biden won, but it's not, you know, a big Democratic seat. It's some it's a seat that's moved to the right due to the shift in, in Hispanic vote in South Texas. There definitely is worth thinking about the general election, but 
the idea that the candidate under federal investigation is the safe choice, I think, is a bit too much to believe. That really does take a lot of chutzpah. And that transitions us perfectly to our final weekly hit, because we're going to talk about another, in this case, former member of Congress who has also been tarred by scandal. Now, all of you like us, you're on a lot of email lists from candidates. You get messages all the time. But imagine if you got one that started like this. I don't know what I'm doing. Quote, unquote, that is exactly how former Republican rep Scott Taylor started an email to his list recently saying that he's thinking about trying for a comeback in Virginia's 2nd Congressional District. Why is he trying for a comeback? Well, because he got his ass handed to him in 2018 after his staff tried to get a former Democrat on the ballot as an independent in order to pull votes away from the real Democrat, Elaine Luria, by faking signatures. This completely blew up in Taylor's face. The fake independent was kicked off the ballot. Multiple of his staffers were indicted and charged. Taylor himself claimed not to have any knowledge of the scandal, but Democrats ran tons of ads hammering him over it, and Luria ousted him in the Democratic wave year of 2018. He tried to run against her again. This time he lost by a bigger margin. The first time he lost by two points. The next time he lost by six points. So when he says he doesn't know what he's doing, maybe we should believe him. Well, I'll tell you who definitely does believe him. That would be House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy just a couple of days after Taylor sent this really bizarre email. He specifically endorsed State Senator Jen Kiggins for this race. Clearly, he doesn't want his old member back. And that really is saying something, uh, especially if Kevin McCarthy knows what he's doing more than someone else does. We are going to take a short break, and when we're back, we are going to do a deep dive of some of the big new congressional maps that have recently been enacted with the help of Daily Coast Elections contributing editor, David Jarman. Stay with us. Joining us today is Daily Coast Elections contributing editor, David Jarman who has been a member of the DKE family for many, many years, going back to our days as the Swing State Project. He joined us in 2008. And over the years, he has developed an incredible acuity for analyzing political maps and understanding the implications of how districts are drawn and what that will mean for elections based on these new congressional redistricting plans that we've been seeing nationwide. So we are going to take a deep dive, go far into the weeds with Jarman, looking at various congressional maps that have been completed across the country and seeing what they might hold in store for not only the midterm elections, but for the coming decade. Jarman, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Glad to be here. So why don't we start with my home state of New York? This is a state where Democrats had total control of the redistricting process, and they decided they were not going to unilaterally disarm, and they wound up 
producing what has to be regarded as a pretty aggressive gerrymander. So why don't you walk us through some of the most salient features of this new map? Yeah, this is a good place to start because it's probably the biggest surplus of any democratic surplus of any state. What we had before was a 20 Democrat to seven Republican map, although one of the in one of those uh, seats that Biden won, there is a moderate Republican who's a uh, has great endurance, John Katko. But the new map has 22 Democratic districts and four Republican districts. So you could look at that as a net of uh, three to four seats, probably. Well, on Long Island, there used to be two slightly Republican seats in Suffolk County, which is the furthest east part of Long Island. They rearranged that so that now one of the seats is um, likely to be Democratic going forward, and the uh, Republican occupant of that seat, Lee Zeldin, uh, already helped us out by running for governor, so it's an open seat as well. Following that is uh, the Staten Island seat, which is New York's 11th district. This is a traditionally Republican seat uh, that links Staten Island with uh, southern parts of Brooklyn that are Republican-leaning. And what they did instead um, was taking out areas around um, Brighton Beach and Coney Island that are Republican and um, parceled those out to other districts that are much safer and instead stuck, stuck in Park Slope, Brooklyn, which is a – you associate that with uh, well-educated, younger white people, hipsters basically. And they've uh, grafted that onto Staten Island, which makes it a – on the balance, a Democratic-leaning seat and another likely pickup. So the Staten Island seat, that's the 11th district, the one held by Nicole Maliotakis. And this is the seat right where uh, Bill de Blasio was thinking about running for a little while. Yes, and mercifully, he's uh, spared us that that trauma. <laughs> so uh, likely the nominee will be Max Rose, the former uh, representative who held the seat for two years before losing in 2020. He does face a primary, potentially face a primary though. Right. And Rose was definitely a more moderate Democrat, but obviously having held that seat, he brings a lot of name recognition. So why don't we then move further on upstate to see what else Democrats were able to wrest from Republicans? Uh, well, we could talk about the 22nd district, which was centered on Utica. That's the seat that essentially got vaporized because New York had to go down from 27 to 26 seats. It very narrowly uh, missed being able to retain its 27th seat in the census, but they felt just short of the mark, and one of the seats had to go overboard. And the person who went overboard with it is Claudia Tenney, who um, represented the 22nd, though I we should point out that she is likely going to run in the 23rd, which is the old southwestern New York seat where Tom Reed is retiring. And a very small portion of the old 22nd is now in the new 23rd, so she can bring 70,000 constituents with her. But uh, most of the territory will be new to her. But it's a solidly red district, so if she can survive the primary, she will still be around. So now you mentioned the 22nd district. 
the district number shifted a little bit, right? And so now there is a new district that's numbered the 22nd district, but that really is the successor to the old 24th district. And you were alluding to that one earlier. Yes, that's the Syracuse-based district where John Katko was the representative for a number of years. However, he too is uh, retiring not to run for anything else. Just uh, I think he saw the writing on the wall regarding his district and he is leaving office, and that is um, now likely to uh, be a Democratic seat in the future. About how blue is that seat? How how good of a shot do Democrats have at picking that one up? Yeah, it's nearly a 60-40 seat, which um, uh, it's 58 to 40. So I don't think there's any coming back from that, even with a CATCO-style moderate. Right. And the odds of a CATCO-style moderate winning a GOP primary, even in a district that what gave 58% of its vote to Joe Biden, is probably yeah. not in the cards. In fact, I'd say it's not in the cards really anywhere for Republicans. So that run-through gives us then Republicans losing half their seats, going from eight to four, and then Democrats going from 19 to 22, if my math is correct there. And so uh, I think you said at the start, you could either consider that a, a gain of three or, or a gain of four. Either way it goes, that's probably right the biggest shift on the margins in terms of maps favoring Democrats that we're going to see yeah, this year. Ab- absolutely. The next biggest contender is probably Illinois, which uh, is another state where the Democrats had complete control of the redistricting process. And uh, they did not um, hold back in any sense at all. In fact, I think the map is a little more aggressive looking than New York's. Um, And that went from a 12 Democrat and six Republican map previously, though one of those seats that Trump narrowly won was held by a Democrat, Sherry Bustos. And that is now a 14 Democrat and three Republican seat. So several Republicans went overboard And while um, Sherry Bustos is retiring, it's a much bluer seat now, and uh, whichever Democrat tries to succeed her is likely to have a better time. Yeah, and one thing I want to just note is that obviously one thing that's come up a lot among like prognosticators is that in a big Republican year, which this might be, there's worry that, you know, seats that Biden won or seats that are Democratic leaning might be won by Republicans, you know, if it's a bad year for Democrats and a good year for Republicans. And that's true. But we're looking at these from the perspective of the median year. So it may be the case that, you know, one or more of these seats are held onto or won by Republicans in 2022. But that's not true in you know 2024 or, or so on. These are districts that in most cases are going to be around for 10 years. So, The fact that a Republican might win at once in a big Republican year is maybe not as relevant as the fact that overall we would expect Democrats to win them throughout the decade. Yes, that's right. There's kind of a Schrodinger's cat quality to this whole discussion because we're talking about what what would happen, all other things being equal versus what would happen in a midterm where there's a Democrat in the White House and the losses are going to occur because of thermostatic public opinion more so than what happened in the redistricting process. Thermostatic public opinion is definitely a topic you will hear us talk about a lot this year on the Down Ballot podcast. 
but we're going to shift gears from talking about Democratic gerrymanders and look at some states where redistricting was in the hands of an independent board. So let's move to Michigan, where they have an independent redistricting commission for the first time after it was passed by ballot initiative. And their commission has undone sort of a GOP gerrymander that had taken place in the previous decade. It had started to break down in 2018 due to strong Democratic performances. So the number of Democratic and GOP representatives may not change as much, but there's a big change on the ground in terms of how the districts are set up and how Democratic or Republican leaning they are. Jarman, why don't you kick us off with sort of the the Detroit suburbs area and how things have shook out there? Basically what happened is that uh, two Democratic representatives got put together in the same seat, Haley Stevens and Andy Levin. They're both running for a pretty blue seat that's centered in Oakland County, which is the more affluent of Michigan's two big suburban counties. And there's another one, the which is the 10th going forward, which is very narrowly a Trump one district, but potentially one where a Democratic candidate could still win. But that's an that's an open seat. So there is a possibility of one fewer Democratic representative in the Detroit area than we currently have. But on the flip side, we may well gain a seat in the Grand Rapids area where the seat that Peter Meyer holds, who's a Republican freshman, went from a narrowly Trump won seat to one that Biden won by a decent amount and will probably support a Democrat in most years. And it's worth noting that the Michigan 11 Oakland County seat, if you go back to 2010, 2012, was originally drawn as a Republican gerrymandered seat. And because of the big shift in suburban areas, particularly in suburbs like Oakland County, it was won by a Democrat in 2018. It had become, you know, still competitive, but more and more Democratic leaning. And now with the new draw where it's not gerrymandered, it's a very safe Democratic seat. That wouldn't have existed, you know, if you go back a decade. Ironically, you see that in a, in a number of states, um, like even in Illinois, where the seats that were drawn to be Republican vote sinks are now Democratic, and uh, some of the seats that were intended, some of the more rural seats that were intended to be Democratic friendly, are now pretty solidly Republican, owing to changes in the party's coalitions over the course of a decade. And that's a point really worth emphasizing. Just circling back to what both Beard and Jarman were saying earlier, just because you have a sense of how a map might perform in 2022, who knows what it'll look like in 2028 or 2030. Exactly. And I just want to touch briefly on a couple of other districts in Michigan that had some small changes, both with Democratic representatives. Michigan 7, which is now a Lansing-based district that had previously gone into the, the Detroit suburbs, and Michigan 8, which is the sort of Flint-Saginaw district. So both of those sort of just changed a little bit um, and so got a little better, a little worse for the Democratic representatives, right? Yes, that's right. Um, Dan Kildee, who represents the Flint area district, um, it has a pretty closely um, fought district that Biden narrowly won. Um, but on the other hand, Alyssa Slotkin, who represents the Lansing area seat, had a seat that uh, Trump formerly won, which is now narrowly Biden won seat. So that strengthens her position. She probably would have been the most and probably may well still be the most vulnerable Democrat in the Democratic caucus in Michigan. 
but she's a little better positioned to survive now in 2022. So let's move on to Arizona, which is another state with an independent redistricting commission. It has five members, two Democrats, two Republicans, and one independent. And last cycle, um, back in you know 2011, 2012, when redistricting happened, the Arizona legislature and the governor felt like the independent member was too friendly with Democrats because they were you know Republicans, and they tried to get rid of her. They they went to court. The Arizona Supreme Court upheld the independent member, and so we had very fair, very competitive maps that you know Democrats did pretty well in because they won close races. And so this cycle, there's been another commission, you know, the independent commissioner who has to be a registered independent. I think the wide belief was that she was a little friendlier with the Republicans this time, tended to vote a little more with the Republicans than the previous cycle. So there were some some changes. I wouldn't call it exactly like an aggressive gerrymander or anything like that, but it's definitely made some some tweaks that benefited Republicans. So why don't you tell us uh, German, what some of those changes are. Yeah, on, on the surface, you might look at it and say, well, that map um, didn't really get any worse. It's still a 5-4 map to the extent that there are still five districts that Joe Biden won and four of the Donald Trump won, which is pretty much right in line with Arizona being one of the closest states in the 2020 election. But what happened below, a little below the surface is that previously there was only one Democratic-held seat that was uh, close at the presidential level. That one is now pretty solidly a Republican seat. The The former first district, which is now the second district, held by Tom O'Halloran in the uh, northern part of the state, including Flagstaff and the Navajo Nation. But the new first district is what used to be the sixth district. That's in Phoenix's eastern suburbs, and it's held by Republican David Schweikert. This is now one of the two um, districts that were very narrowly won by Joe Biden. I think this is one that the Democrats have a good shot at um, going forward in future presidential years. But even though it's about a 50 for Biden, 48 uh, for Trump seat currently, probably not the best odds of picking it up under these kinds of midterm conditions. And the other seat that's at issue is the former second, now the sixth, which is in the Tucson area, the Anglo parts of Tucson. That used to be Ann Kirkpatrick's seat. She's retiring. And that seat used to previously went for Biden by about 10 points. And now it went for Biden by less than a fraction of one point. So between that and the open seat status there, that is going to be a difficult retention. I have to compliment you, Jarman, for keeping track of all of these changes in district numbers. This is something that is really important to stay on top of whenever you're analyzing new maps. And it can be really tricky to know which old district is which new district and vice versa. But fortunately, at Daily Coast Elections, because we love data so much, we have a resource that shows exactly how new districts line up with old districts. We will include that link in our transcript. We'll link it right there. So if you're interested, just find our transcript. You can find a link to the transcript in the show description and then a link to our old versus new district resource in the transcript. And one of the things about Arizona, like we've talked about for some of these previous states, is because the the way it was set up, that two districts are extremely narrowly won by Biden, that you can think like in any sort of good 
Democratic year where it's, you know, even just a little bit good, there's a good chance that Democrats will win five seats and Republicans will win four seats. But because of the narrowness of the new first and the new sixth districts, any Republican lean at all will easily make this map a six Republican, three Democrat map, which is, you know, far from what you would think of as fair if there's only a slight Republican lean in the country for a state that was so closely contested. But in a, a more neutral presidential type election, it could easily revert back to a 5-4 map or if uh, there's a midterm under a Republican president at some point in the coming decade. And people talk about the number of competitive seats shrinking overall, thanks to the most recent round of redistricting, the one that we're undergoing right now. And that's absolutely correct. However, when the House is as closely divided as it is right now, it doesn't take too many competitive seats, obviously, to shift the playing field. But that playing field has, in fact, gotten a lot smaller. And maybe the best state to talk about in terms of how it's shifted and how the number of competitive seats has really shrunk is Texas, which is the largest Republican-held state in the country. It gained two congressional districts as a result of the census most recently, and Republicans have full control of the redistricting process there. And they really engaged in what has been called a defensive gerrymander. So, Jarman, what exactly is a defensive gerrymander, and how did it play out in Texas? Well, what happened in Texas is that there were nearly half a dozen seats in the 2020 election that hadn't really been competitive earlier in the decade that because of their um, educated suburban populace were pretty close um, in the most recent election, though in each of the cases, um, Trump only narrowly won against Biden. And uh, what's nefarious about the Texas gerrymander on the surface, it looks okay. That was fine because the Democrats added a seat in the in Austin, and the the Republicans added a seat in the Houston suburbs. But um, those five or six seats that I was that I was talking about, where uh, Trump won by only a few points, have all been transformed into ones that he won by over ten points or more. In fact, one of them, the twenty fourth, is a, a seat that. Biden actually won narrowly in 2020, and even that one is now one that Trump won by more than 10 points. That's in Dallas's northern suburbs, currently held by Republican Beth Van Dyne. And her, her, her win in 2020 seemed like a bit of an upset. That was probably on everyone's list as one of the most likely seats to flip, but it did not flip in 2020. What are some of the other seats that have gotten a similar treatment and that are probably off the table for Democrats, at, at least for the near future? Um, well, in the Houston area, there's the 2nd, the 10th, and the 22nd. And in the Dallas area, the 3rd and the 6th as well. Or the 10th, actually, you could call that an Austin area seat. It's it's one of those weird worm-shaped seats in Texas that uh, spans from one metropolitan area to another one in a totally different part of the state. I will call it a Houston area seat. Then. Do you think that any of these seats by the end of the decade, if you're able to say even though there's no certainty, of course, in, in such predictions, but do you think any of them might shift toward Democrats and Republicans might not have shored themselves up as well as they think? Or do they really create something rock solid? It's pretty solid considering that they've um, 
boosted them all to uh, more than a 10 point edge. I think you'll see some, if the can, if the trends that we've seen in the last four years continue where um, suburbanites, college educated suburbanites continue to uh, flee the Republican party, then yes, it will get closer, but there's always the possibility that we've essentially maxed out on that. And, um, whatever coalition changes we see coming in the next decade will be coming from some other direction that we haven't really foreseen yet. Now, Republicans did not engage only in defensive gerrymandering in Texas. They also went on the offense, and they in particular seemed pretty excited about possible trends towards the GOP among Latino voters, especially in South Texas. So what did they rearrange there? Well, the fifth, the 15th district in the um, McAllen area, which is sort of the heart of the Rio Grande Valley, um, was previously one that um, Biden won pretty narrowly. It's one that Democrats won pretty comfortably in previous parts of the decade, but the uh, sudden shift in the Latino vote in the Rio Grande Valley turned this into a swing district. And they have ne- the, with the map, they turned that narrowly into a um, Republican-leaning district. So that's possible they will that will be the one Republican pickup in the in Texas in 2022. To to flesh that out with some numbers, the 15th went from a 50 for Biden, 49 for Trump district and on the old map to now 48 for Biden, 51 for Trump. So that doesn't seem like a big shift on paper, but when you're talking about a district that that's that's that narrowly divided that could be what's decisive. And also, as we were saying, the trends have not been favorable for Democrats. Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama both won that area by much larger margins. So if if those trends continue, then Democrats could definitely face some difficult sledding ahead in South Texas. But of course, we don't know if it's a trend because it really was just that one election. Yeah, they, they could have, they could be losing the 15th anyway, regardless of the Republicans making that a more difficult district. But on the other hand, we can see the uh, same thing that I was talking about with the suburbs in reverse, that the um, Latino shift to the right in um, rural Texas just stops. It was a one-time a one-time occurrence and re, uh, reverts more to the norm. But again, we won't simply won't know that for a few more cycles. And then there was... One other district that the GOP sort of shored up um, out towards El Paso that had been quite competitive in the last decade, and they sort of moved to to make that one more Republican in the hopes to to keep it off the board, right? Right. That's the 23rd district, which is uh, geographically an extremely large district that reaches from El Paso to parts of San Antonio and then down towards the Rio Grande Valley as well. And that moved from being one that, um, for instance, Clinton and Obama won pretty convincingly to one that Biden lost anyway, just because of the the shift among Texas Latinos. And they, uh, Republicans added a couple more points of Trump percentage to that one in the redistricting process. So that is likely moving out of our reach um, as long as Latino trends continue where they are.
So there have been a ton of maps obviously already enacted. We can't go through all of them here today, but we do want to hit a couple of states where maps have been proposed or sort of in the legislature in process. There's some clarity as to where things are going, but there's still a lot of, in this case, GOP infighting. And so those states are, are Florida and Missouri. So let's kick it off with Florida, where the GOP completely controls the process. There is a fair districts amendment in the state's constitution, but it relies on the state Supreme Court to enforce it, which is now very conservative. So it's a little unclear as to how aggressive the Republicans are going to be. The state Senate has largely been on the more moderate following sort of the spirit, at least, you know, in part of the fair districts amendment, whereas the state house and particularly, you know, Governor DeSantis has gone extremely aggressive into a gerrymander. So Jarman, why don't you just tell us where sort of the big changes are and where sort of these controversies are between the different GOP factions? Right. The um, the Florida, the map from the Florida Senate was surprisingly neutral because keeping in mind they're Republican controlled just as the House is in Florida. Uh, it may well have uh, resulted in uh, a Democratic gain of one seat, just in terms of where they put the new, the new seat in the I four corridor. Um, and that, like you said, that's the Florida Senate trying to comply with the fair districts requirements and trying to generate a map that won't be um, subject to much further litigation. But um, I think the maximalist position is coming from the governor instead, who wanted to not only destroy the seventh district, which is a uh, light blue seat in the Orlando suburbs that's held by uh, Democratic Representative Stephanie Murphy, who's retiring, but also going after the fifth district, which in its current configuration is a um, black majority or at least black plurality seat that links Jacksonville with Tallahassee. So what DeSantis would like is to um, break that district up and uh, eke out one more Republican district in the panhandle area. So he's going for the the maximum Republican gain of probably at least two seats. And there's a backstory here as well, which is that Ron DeSantis has presidential ambitions, and it's a base-pleasing move to push for a maximalist gerrymander. And he's even hinted that he might veto a map passed by his fellow Republicans, which of course would mean he's sticking it to the rhino squishes, the swamp creatures that the Trumpists hate. The interesting thing there, though, is that Democrats seem to be pretty okay with what the GOP is proposing. In fact, the Senate map passed with a mostly bipartisan vote. So we could actually see a bipartisan override of Ron DeSantis's ambitions. And we're seeing a similar story play out in Missouri, where we have hardcore fanatics also pushing for a hardcore gerrymander. What's going on there? What the uh, hardcore contingent in Missouri would like is a seven Republican to one Democrat map, which is a change from the current 6-2 configuration and I guess the uh, more establishment Republican um, perspective on the new map is they would just continue with with 6-2. But what they would like in a 7-1 map involves having to split Kansas City several ways, essentially cracking it in redistricting parlance and adjoining the different pieces of Kansas City to other rural dark red districts. Why do you think that the establishment 
the GOP leadership in Missouri is resisting the opportunity to break up Kansas City between multiple red districts? Um, well, one part is that they probably don't want to risk what's known as a dummy mander, where um, your bright idea about maximally redistricting uh, bites you in the butt later in the decade when coalitions change or just when the wave is running the other direction in a midterm. The other uh, aspect is the Ann Wagner in the second district in the St. Louis suburbs on the other end of the state is pretty adamant about not wanting her district to get redder so that she doesn't lose in a primary. Not that she's moderate, but that she's, you know, pretty much the archetype of establishment Republican and is worried about having, as she said, too many wacko birds in her primary. <laughs> well, the wacko birds right now in the Missouri Senate are controlling the agenda. They've been filibustering. They've been putting up procedural hurdles and there is tremendous bad blood right now. There's no real clear exit path at all. In fact, there's no murky exit path. Perhaps a total standstill would lead to a court drawn map. We will just have to see. One other thing to keep in mind about Missouri is that the GOP lost their two-thirds majority um, due to some resignations in one of the houses, and they need that two-thirds majority to pass the law as a emergency legislation to allow it to go into effect early. Otherwise, it goes into effect as all laws go into effect, apparently, in Missouri in August. And that would be too late for things like the filing deadline and you know the primary to get set up. And so they need a two-thirds majority in both chambers to be able to do this cleanly. The Democrats can stop them from doing that, which could result in a court map, which is, I think, part of the reason why the Republican sort of established majority is just like, let's go with a status quo map. Let's just pass this through. And why the, you know, the radical conservatives have been all up in arms where they're holding the floor and doing this sort of filibuster, which the establishment Republicans could overcome, but are sort of reluctant to do to their own party. So it's a very messy situation and it's not clear how it will turn out. And redistricting is indeed often a messy situation for every state you have, like New York or Texas, where everyone is reading from the same hymnal and marching to the same drummer. You have a state like Florida or Missouri, where the infighting, often GOP infighting, is leading to messy outcomes or no outcome at all. David Jarman, thank you so much for joining us on this deep dive across the redistricting landscape. We look forward to having you back on to talk about new maps once those are in place. Thanks for having me, and I will see you again soon. That's all from us this week. Next week, we'll have a comprehensive preview of the Texas primary that's coming up on March 1st. Thanks to David Jarman for joining us. The Down Ballot comes out every Thursday everywhere. If you haven't already, please like and subscribe to Down Ballot and leave us a five-star rating and review. Thanks also to our producer, Kara Zelaya, and editor, Tim Einenkel. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Down Ballot.